0: Well, please look with me at Proverbs 3. i We're going to read the whole chapter, and then we'll walk through it together. My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments for length of days and years of life, and peace they will add to you. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck, write them on the tablet of your heart, so you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. "'Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty, and your vats will be bursting with wine.'" My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof, for the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. Blessed is the one who finds wisdom and the one who gets understanding, for the gain from her is better than gain from silver and her profit better than gold. She is more precious than jewels and nothing you desire can compare with her. Long life is in her right hand, in her left hand are riches and honor. Her ways are pleasantness, and all her paths are peace. She is a tree of life to those who lay hold of her. Those who hold her fast are called blessed. The Lord by wisdom founded the earth. By understanding, he established the heavens. By his knowledge, the deeps broke open, and the clouds dropped down the dew. My son... "'Do not lose sight of these. Keep sound wisdom and discretion, "'and they will be life for your soul and adornment for your neck. "'Then you will walk on your way securely, and your foot will not stumble. "'If you lie down, you will not be afraid. "'When you lie down, your sleep will be sweet. "'Do not be afraid of sudden terror or of the ruin of the wicked when it comes.' For the Lord will be your confidence and will keep your foot from being caught. Do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is in your power to do it. Do not say to your neighbor, go and come again. Tomorrow I will give it when you have it with you. Do not plan evil against your neighbor who dwells trustingly beside you. Do not contend with a man for no reason when he has done no harm. Do not envy a man of violence, and do not choose any of his ways. For the devious person is an abomination to the Lord, but the upright are in his confidence. The Lord's curse is on the house of the wicked, but he blesses the dwelling of the righteous. Toward the scorners he is scornful, but to the humble he gives favor. The wise will inherit honor, but fools get disgrace. There is this common, hyper-noble, and very misguided idea that so long as I honor the Lord, I need not be concerned at all with what man thinks. Now, I don't know why any man would think that he's honoring Christ or honoring Scripture with that mindset, unless he simply chooses to overemphasize some passages in scripture that call him to trust God and to not worship man and therefore dismiss the responsibility that we have before the Lord to gain favor with men. There is a drastic distinction between spirit-filled love for the lost and compromise around the lost so that we would in fact give up our testimony by attempting to gain favor. But there is the command for us to gain favor with all men. The man who rigidly and probably somewhat angrily declares his commitment to God and not man is preventing any ability to convince anyone that he's actually committed to God. Let's just be real clear. That is Phariseeism at its height It's an escape from the duties of Scripture to be one who actually represents the character of God under the pretense that he does by actually having anger, really unrighteous hatred, toward those who have not yet experienced grace the way he himself claims to have experienced it. As you recall from our reading in the book of Genesis this morning, the Lord himself is sovereign, and in his sovereignty, he covered the earth with floodwaters in a way that displayed his righteousness. He blotted out every single person on the earth, and yet there was Noah. Only Noah was left, Genesis 7, 23 tells us, and those who were with him in the ark. Why? Because Noah was a man who had favor with God. It certainly was not that Noah earned righteousness or that he earned favor. God's righteousness was granted to him by faith. Justification comes by faith, by faith alone. By the way, we're going to have a rich saturation in the doctrines of grace in the month of October. I'm so excited about that. And if you are looking closely as you read through the scripture, you see God's favor upon man as a result of the kind intention of God's will in eternity past. But at the same time, a significant element of God granting his grace to some is that he shows men the pathway to that grace. We call that the means of grace we will exercise one of them today with the Lord's table. When we call it a means of grace, what we mean by that is that God has given us clear instructions. It is the man who is obedient to the Lord to whom he grants grace. He grants grace to a man. He shows him how to experience that grace. And as man is compliant with a whole heart on that path, then God continues to flood him with grace. God grants grace to The humble. So it's important that you and I keep a close watch on the commands of Scripture. You know, the man who wonders why in the world God's not blessing him with more discernment, more wisdom. You know, he scratches his head and he stares into the sky half the day and says, I just don't understand why I don't know what God's will for my life is. Let me just be clear. God's will for your life is that you obey the commands of Scripture and he will bless you by grace with abundant blessings, more than you might ever be able to count or quantify. This is where Solomon really starts to give a rapid-fire, machine-gun-like expression of very potent commands. You know, these couplets and we're gonna walk through these. We call these cause and effect statements. So if you want this, do this. And that's how I created the outline. And if you look at your outline when we're finished, you're gonna see a theme. And you know, I don't come up with the data, right? I'm just trying to codify this in a way that's clear, helpful for you, easier to remember, easier to get your arms around, and easier to obey the Lord as a result of sound teaching. That's what According to Nehemiah 8, that's what sound teaching does. It reads the scripture and it explains it. And that's my role as a pastor, one of my roles, to feed you and to protect you. And so this is my great desire this morning, to show you how this really comes together. I want you to watch closely. It's just beautiful. It's really amazing. There is so much data here. I mean, if you only get 10% of this proverb this morning, it'll change your life. But I suspect that for all of this, there's some temptation to think that we're favorable in the eyes of God, that we must be doing that which pleases the Lord, and yet we find ourselves hard-hearted toward people. From the beginning, let's be clear. If you're hard-hearted toward anyone, you're hard-hearted toward God. You say, no, I don't, I don't think so. I think I really love God, but yeah, that one guy, your expression, your opportunity to manifest a compliance before the lord's commands is to obey his commands to have a soft spirit toward people and you don't get to choose you don't have the sovereignty you don't have the free will to determine who is worthy of your kindness and who is not you're called upon to be at peace with all men insofar as it depends upon you now that doesn't give you an insurmountable task. It calls you to be at peace insofar as you can be at peace. Number one, for fullness of life in peace, keep godly counsel. Now listen, let me tell you what it doesn't say. For fullness of life in peace, read your Bible. Now obviously reading your Bible is fundamental to the Christian faith. It's a basic discipline of the Christian faith. But if you do, you're going to come to this conclusion Let's do it together now, shall we? My son, verse 1, my son, do not forget my teaching. Who's speaking here? Is this God? It's the man's father. He's calling upon him to embrace human wisdom as given by God. My hope would be at this point that you would enter into the gateway of blessings that Proverbs 3 has for you, and if it is true of you that you are not a man or a woman who passionately seeks counsel from others, that you would do so now. But if you will subject yourself to this basic truth, there's a sense in which this is the introductory comment. Certainly, uh, verses 1 through 7 of Proverbs 1 is introductory to all of the Proverbs. The man who seeks counsel gains wisdom. The beginning of knowledge is the fear of the Lord. The one who doesn't fear God, he rejects everything that has to say about the one another's. He probably has no relationship, no real relationship with the church of Jesus Christ. He might dance with the church. He might come half the time. He might engage in some of the activities, but he is not grafted into the body, and therefore he doesn't have relationships wherein he could say, hey, can you help me with something? I'm really dying right now over this issue. But the man who will seek counsel will keep it if he desires to have fullness of life and peace. Listen to what the proverb says. My son, do not forget my teaching But let your heart keep my commandments for length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. Reflective of Exodus 20 verse 12 in the Ten Commandments. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Axiomatically speaking, the person who subjects himself to sound counsel lives a longer life there are exceptions. As we've said, these are generalities. These are truisms. But don't be the person who attempts to wiggle out of the responsibility given in the passage by saying, well, you know, there are lots of exceptions. Don't desire to be the exception so that you are no longer under obligation to the Lord to do what he has called you to do, which would then, by the way, prevent you from receiving his grace. The person who honors his father and mother is told he will have a long life now the the other side of this coin regarding a person's mindset toward his parents listen to this from deuteronomy 21 verse 18 listen to this if a man has a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey the voice of his father or the voice of his mother and though they discipline him will not listen to them Then his father and his mother shall take hold of him and bring him out to the elders of his city at the gate of the place where he lives. And they shall say to the elders of his city, This our son is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey our voice. He is a glutton and a drunkard. Then all the men of the city shall stone him to death with stones. So you shall purge the evil from your midst, and all Israel shall hear and fear. Now you know that we live in a different economy. This was an element of the old covenant. But God has not changed his attitude toward those who dishonor their parents. To dishonor one's parents, in God's mind, warrants the termination of one's life. The person who honors either biological parents or spiritual parents in such a way that displays honor to the Lord can expect peace. And he should expect that God will grant him peace in a lengthy life. Proverbs 3, verse 17, in the coming verse in our passage, speaks of this regarding wisdom. It says, her ways are ways of pleasantness, and all her paths are peace. It's so often the person who says, well, I don't know, you have know, experienced so much difficulty, that person is often unwilling to do an honest assessment of his or her consistent conduct. So quick to point out the good things and yet unwilling to confess sin. Proverbs 16, 7 says, When a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies be at peace with him. You see, the person who keeps godly counsel, he clings to the teaching of a spiritual father, is the one who can expect that God will give him peace even with his enemies. Some men are proud to be at enmity with their enemies. They think it's righteous. They think themselves spiritually elite. But Jesus says in Matthew 5, 9, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. The point is that the person who is a believer is a person who is inclined to make peace with others. Why? Because he himself has experienced peace. He knows the joy of peace, and he wants others to have it. Well, point number two, for favor with God and man, love like God. Verse 3 says, Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. In other words, affix these truths to your soul. You know, one thing you might do, in an effort to embrace the spirit of this passage is to engage in a literal effort. Use a 3 by 5 card or get the Bible app that allows you to be reminded on an hourly basis of the passage that you're trying to memorize. But in particular, memorize passages that deal with the pathway unto favor with God and man. The promise here is that if you will cling to consistent love, the love of God, right? God-like love, uninterrupted love. God's love that exists in eternity past. God didn't start loving you. God in eternity past has always loved you with a special love that is manifest in Christ's death on the cross for the atoning of your sins, such that his resurrection then would provide complete and eternal hope. For you. you see, that's the kind of love that you and I are called to have for others. An uninterrupted love that is placed upon others and proven in action. Don't let that leave you. Don't let faithfulness forsake you, it says. And then this very practical analogy, bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. What does that mean? Memorize them memorize passages that help you think rightly about people and about God. I suggest you start with this passage. It's where I started many years ago. I memorized this passage. I can remember writing it on a 3 by 5 card, and to this day it helps me in difficult circumstances. To have the attitude of love toward others that God has toward others rather than a self-righteous attitude that says, that person doesn't deserve my love if that's the kind of love you have, no one would want that kind of love. That is not a helpful love that says, I'll give it to you so long as you earn it. Is that the kind of love you want from your parents? Of course not. Is that the kind of love you want from God? Of course not. It's not the kind of love you have from God. If you have God's love, then you have a love that does not change. It's a powerful love, and that's the kind of love that you and I are to express with others. And what will be the result? Well, this is, again, as we've said about the Proverbs, it's an axiomatic truth. It's kind of obvious. You're going to find favor and good success with God and with man. See, if you have been exposed to and have become somewhat enraptured by the doctrines of grace, good for you, that's exciting. I mean, you know I love that. But if you are in that stage, which many people go through, where you appreciate the sovereignty of God, and as a result, you have come to the conclusion that man should not receive anything from you, and that your conduct is simply decreed in eternity past, all things are decreed by God in eternity past, and therefore, you know, it is what it is. And you look at everything that you've ever done wrong, and you say, well, you know what? The way I look at it is God decreed that in eternity past. Why in the world are you emphasizing that, but not emphasizing this truth, that God gives favor to the person who loves others with a God-like love? It's utterly and theologically irresponsible to be constantly focused on the sovereignty of God without being a person who endeavors to love as God loves, not just to love God, but to engage in the second commandment, to love others as you love self. In Luke 2, 52, we're told that Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Of all people that you know, who do you think is most committed to the sovereignty of God? Well, the God-man, of course. He knows that doctrine better than anyone. He recorded it for us. He lived it with perfection, and yet he gained favor with God and with man. See, he is our example. So if you and I are to follow his example, we will be people who daily ask ourselves, to what degree am I seeking counsel, attempting to gain favor with God and with man by obeying the commands of Scripture? Point number three. For freedom from trouble, trust God, not your heart. The man who has no interest in seeking counsel from others just trusts his own heart. He's convinced, well, God spoke to me. Or, you know, God gave me an impression. Or I pray a lot. Or I read the Bible a lot. I've been studying the Bible for years. I know how this works. Clearly, he doesn't know how it works because he's not interested in engaging in the clear command to embrace the teachings of others, to seek them out with passion. For freedom from trouble, trust God, not your heart. A very common passage. Maybe most of you have this passage memorized. Verse 5, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. He who trusts in his own heart, the Bible says, is a fool, despite the fact that that's the main theme at Disneyland. <laughs> right? You know better. You to trust your heart. If you know anything about your heart, you know that your heart's not trustworthy. That's not to say that you're blatantly or uninterruptedly dishonest. That's not the point. The point is that your heart is not perfected yet, as it will be in heaven. And so you need the counsel of others. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. It doesn't just mean read your Bible. In fact, if you are reading the Bible, then eventually you're going to get to the place where you realize that there is a desperate need on your part for interdependent relationships in the body. It says, in all your ways acknowledge him, and what will the result be? Here we're talking about another cause and effect relationship. For freedom from trouble, if you want freedom from trouble, trust God. Don't trust your heart. It says, in all your uh, ways acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. It's not to say that there aren't going to be bumps and difficulties and even crashes along the pathway, but he will keep your path straight. I believe the ultimate allusion here is to the idea that God in eternity past decreed whom he would save and he will take you to heaven. You can be certain of that. If you're walking faithfully with him, then that's what we call the perseverance of the saints. You can know that God has given you that desire to obey him, to love him and to love people and the... Reality is that in the same way that he has granted you eternal life, he has granted you or he has predestined you unto good works. Those good works are a reflection of the fact that he's predestined you unto eternal life. But here's your attitude. Here's your attitude if this is increasingly true of you. It's the attitude of Joseph when he came into a new chapter with his brothers who had attempted to kill him and sold him into slavery as a result of jealousy. And as you know, they feared because now they realize it's him. He has the clear and certain ability to end their lives. So they're expectant that he will. And they beg him. And what is his comment to them? What you intended for evil, God intended for good. You know, is this your mindset that what others have intended for evil, God intended For good? Or is it your mindset that, you know what, you intended for evil, I will repay? Just give me time. I will, you know, I'll give you the silent treatment long enough. I'll ignore your efforts to confront me long enough. I'll avoid you long enough. I will gossip about you long enough that either you'll forget about it or I'll forget about it or you'll feel the pain that I have felt. The Lord assures us that vengeance is his, not ours. The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Proverbs 16:9 says, is it not true? that when you acknowledge him, he will make straight your paths. But think of this in the inverse fashion, which is grammatically appropriate to do so. The person about whom it is true to say that God has made straight his paths is a person to whom God has given the will to acknowledge him. You can thank him for that. Thank him when you obey him. Thank him that you are willing to trust in him with all your heart and to lean not on your own understanding. If God has given you that passion, it's because he's given you new life. Ephesians 2, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, and he made you alive. And when he made you alive, he gave you this desire to avoid trouble by trusting him and not your own heart. Well, point number four, for fortification of health, fear God and confess your pride. Physical well-being. That's the idea here. Again, we're talking about Proverbs, that generally speaking, the person who is committed to this principle, generally speaking, is the person who will experience physical well-being. Fear God and confess your pride. You say, that's the solution to my respiratory infection? I don't know. I mean, you understand this. The idea is not that you go home and you try this for 30 minutes, and if you're still sneezing and hacking, that you say, well, that wasn't true. We're talking about permeating truths that over the long haul of life, you will see them to rise up and show themselves to honor God and to make your life more blessed. If you'll subject yourself to biblically Christ-honoring principles... And you will experience fortification of health. But it's the prideful man who often brings himself down physically. It's often the prideful man who's willing to do things with his body in circumstances where he probably should be resting. But the reality is that this principle is critical for you and I if we would have the length of years with which to best minister to God. God has established your days. Your days are numbered. But what Solomon is saying here is true. The person who will subject himself with keeping godly counsel will live a full, peaceful life. And I encourage you that if you're thinking, you know, that's not my experience, your experience is not the standard. You you, you get that, right? Hopefully you're over that, or at least getting over it. You are not the keeper of theological truth. God is. God is. So if you are convinced that these truths that we're looking at here are provably untrue as a result of how your life has gone for the last 20 or 30 or 40 or 50 or 100 years, however old you might be, then um, the problem is not that the Word of God is not salient, potent, powerful, sufficient, infallible. That's not the problem. The problem is your low view of Scripture. And it's interesting to me that most people who I know who truly have a low view of Scripture, are people who praise themselves for having a high view of Scripture. Be careful that you're not rejecting this with a high view of your own assessment of things and an actual low view of Scripture. Verse 8 says, It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. In James 5, you have somewhat of a doctrinal instruction with regard to what to do if you're ill. The prayer of a righteous person has a great power as it is working. So it's the power of God that works through faithful, humble, repentant people. There are those who are sick because of their sin. It's a direct result of their sin. God has brought that sickness into his or her life because of that specific sin. But the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. And as you know... This is not an ultimate guarantee across the board that everyone who is sick is in sin, and if he would just confess that sin, that he would get over his sickness. That's, that's not how things work within God's sovereignty, but we know that this is permeatingly true. In other words, there are more cases like this than there are not like this. David in Psalm 32, if you're struggling with, with repentance... You're struggling with whether or not you're even repentant. Or maybe this, maybe even far, far worse. You think you're repentant, but nobody else thinks you're repentant. You're struggling with that. Psalm 32. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. It's blotted out, right? Verse 2. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Selah. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Let's just talk about ulcers for a minute. Now, even those in the medical field would say that ulcers often are the result of what? Worry. You know, your response to difficult or stressful situations. And so let's not dismiss the fact that even those in the medical community would acknowledge that there's some relationship between what goes on in your mind and what happens physiologically in your body. And so if we are to acknowledge that, then I'm convinced that will be helpful to us. Very likely it will be physically helpful to us. Well, point number five. For financial success, give to God first. It's kind of clear. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. You see this principle in 2 Corinthians 9, and specifically in 1 Corinthians 16, 1, where Paul establishes a pattern for the church. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of the week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper. So that there will be no collecting when I come. And let me be clear, it is not necessarily 10%. No matter how many times you've heard that, that is not even once found in the New Testament, and it is not the principle in the Old Testament. There was a standard of percentage for national tax gathering, as well as what you would give to the Levitical priests. And if you were to give what was prescribed in that era, it would actually be 33 and a third percent, not 10. But that would include your taxes, which is probably not far off for those of you who are giving somewhere around 10 percent, which is your business and not mine. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 9, to give as you have determined in your heart. It is between you and the Lord. This is one of those things that's legitimately between you and the Lord. And yet, if you're not seeking counsel from others, how in the world do you know how much to give? That if you're, first of all, not giving of your first fruits, by the way, how do you do that? You establish a percentage. You determine that that's going to come out of everything I get, and it's going to go first to the Lord to give to my local church. And as a result of the time that we spent in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, sometime back, and then Matthew 6 and Matthew 16, especially the passage that tells us that where your heart is, there will your treasure be also. You who were already, I believe, a faithfully giving church have shown yourselves to grow spiritually through that and to be a sacrificially giving church. It's not like you know, I need to beg you to give more. What I would have you do, and I hope what you would have me do and all of us do, is to simply be faithful to the fact that for financial success we're to give to God first. Why should we be grateful to have more money so that we can give more money? And the first priority in our lives ought to be faithfulness to the Lord. It's an act of worship. It's probably your most practical act of Worship, But let no man judge you who tells you you must give 10%, because that's not true. Point number six, for fatherly love, enjoy God's discipline. For fatherly love, enjoy God's discipline. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be wary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves. As a father, the son in whom he delights... Now, let me be clear about what I am not saying. We are not saying here that as a result of enjoying God's discipline, you earn God's love. The whole idea is that enjoying God's discipline, if I can say it that way, and I'll explain what I mean by that, then you're enjoying the Father. You're thankful that you have a Father who truly loves you. I doubt there's any exception in this room for those who had no discipline as a child who wish they had. I would say that my life would have been much, much better if I had had discipline as a child. Hebrews 12, says, For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. Let me stop there for a minute. Why is that? Because it's more painful than it is pleasant, that's why. There's no mystery there. But later, later, It yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Verse 6 says, For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It's a blessing. Discipline is a blessing. It's a blessing to those children who have earthly parents who discipline them with love, but with enough pain that it provides softness of heart so as to receive and embrace truth but it's an expression of one's love for his children. Well, point number seven, for fruitful living, pursue God's wisdom. Long section here, but you will see this truth axiomatically expressed as we go. Just as we read through, I'm just going to read the passage all the way through, and as we read through, you watch. See if it's not true that for fruitful living, for Uh, immeasurable really I I would say innumerable blessings meaning so many blessings you can't count them Uh, blessings of abundance I call it fruitfulness for fruitful living pursue God's wisdom tell me if this is not true as we read through this section verse 13 blessed is the one who finds wisdom and the one who gets understanding for the gain from her is better than gain from silver and her profit better than gold By understanding, he established the heavens. By his knowledge, the deeps broke open, and the clouds dropped down the dew. My son, do not lose sight of these. Keep sound wisdom and discretion, and they will be life for your soul and adornment for your neck. Then you will walk on your way securely, and your foot will not stumble. If you lie down, you will not be afraid. When you lie down, your sleep will be sweet. God's wisdom, right? You see how Solomon turns a corner about halfway down through the passage where he says, verse 19, the Lord by wisdom founded the earth. See, up to that point, he's just talked about wisdom, but here he clarifies it. God's wisdom. Don't be the person who thinks he's wise. Don't be the person who thinks he's wise in a particular area because he's got 20 or 30 years of experience in it. That does not make wisdom It makes for experiential knowledge. But it might stun you how often men in their craft make amazing mistakes, resting on, well, I've been doing this for 30 years, when they could have just asked a friend in the industry and saved themselves thousands of dollars. happens often. So this is the sweetness with which one sleeps, that you see throughout the Bible. The one who fears God, Proverbs 19 says, sleeps well. Why does he sleep well? Because he's experiencing fruitful living. He's passionately pursued wisdom, but not just experiential wisdom, which really isn't wisdom. He pursues wisdom from wise people. He doesn't believe himself to be wise. In fact, you can be certain the man who thinks he is, is certainly not. Point number eight, for faithful neighboring, apply God's wisdom. What do I mean by neighboring? You and I are called to love our neighbor as ourself. Who's your neighbor? It's anybody. It's anybody that you come in contact with, not just your brother, That's mostly easy, mostly. But loving your neighbor, I'm not just talking about the people that live two or three houses down or whatever, but the people you come in contact with, to have faithful neighboring with them. Now, I'm going to read, I'm going to do what I did in the last point. I'm going to read through this, and you just follow along and ask if this is not a permeating truth. Do not be afraid of sudden terror or of the ruin of the wicked when it comes. I don't think you necessarily need to be friendly with the wicked who bring ruin to you, but you do need to be faithful. What is faithfulness? Don't fear them. Often, our fear of people results in a nervous, angry response. You know, the world might call it a uh, defense system, some psychological terms, but biblically, it's fear. It's fear of man. We fear the wicked. Why? Because we don't rightly fear God so do not be afraid of sudden terror or of the ruin of the wicked when it comes for the Lord will be your confidence well not if you're not meditating on the Lord and certainly not if you're not seeking counsel from godly people who can help you to become a man who overcomes his anger his embitteredness his jealousy his gossip by reminding you of the character of God he will keep your foot from being caught. Do you believe that? you believe that? Do you believe that God will be your confidence and he will keep your foot from being caught? Now let me ask you this, though. Do you believe that he won't be your confidence and that he won't keep your foot from being caught if you are fearful of terror, not fearful of him, and unwilling to seek counsel from others? See, the guy who... He's so unbalanced, but thinks he's so righteous because he reads his Bible. You know, he participates in some Christian events. But he's not willing to subject himself to others. He should not be puzzled by the difficulties in his life, by the fact that he has literally almost no ability to be faithful and kind to his enemy. He thinks that person should get what he deserves and that he is the vessel of that punishment. I'll let him have it. I'll show him. Verse 27, do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is in your power to do it. See, it's not only like the immature person, the unwise person who does not seek counsel from others Uh, who is not attempting to apply God's wisdom, it's not unlike that person. If he is willing to fear those who are wicked when they bring difficulty by being hateful and unrighteously angry with them, it's not like that person to also forget to give good to those who should have good. And he ought to be aware of the fact that when he is unwilling to give good, to withhold good from those to whom it is due when it's in their power, that is the same attitude with which he attempts to punish the wicked, which is not his role. You see, these are prohibitions. You know, we could have said, uh, we could have called this for faithful neighboring, embrace God's prohibitions, but they're still commands. Commands. And there's still application of wisdom. Uh, Under point seven, verses 13 through 24, we saw what it is to pursue God's wisdom. Now we see what it is to apply it in the moment. These are difficult scenarios in which every one of us has found ourselves. So the call is, now that you have this theology, now the thing to do is to apply that theology in these difficult moments. Verse 28, do not say to your neighbor, go and come again tomorrow. I will give it when you have it with you. Do not plan evil against your neighbor who dwells trustingly beside you. Do not contend with a man for no reason when he has done you no harm. Do not envy a man of violence, for the devious person is an abomination to the Lord. But the upright are his confidence. The Lord's curse is on the house of the wicked, but he blesses the dwelling of the righteous. See, God has called you and me, to enjoy favor with God and man. And Proverbs 3 gives us uh, what I called earlier really a machine gun rapid fire instruction with regard to multiple ways in which you can experience God's favor and man's favor. But the person who revolts against this truth says, but you don't understand my life is the person who shows himself though he thinks he has a high view of scripture to actually have a low view of scripture and that's the problem that's the problem the last two verses of our passage this morning toward the scorners he is scornful you know don't be envious of the evil man don't withhold good from those to whom it is due don't return evil for evil. Don't forget to give good in return for what one has earned. Toward the scorners, he is scornful, but to the humble he gives favor. To the humble he gives favor. The wise will inherit honor, but fools get disgrace. Now, how do you know How do you know whether you are the scornful or the humble? If you're scornful, God's scorn will come through multiple sources, and ultimately, if that's not corrected in your lifetime, it will come in eternity through eternal suffering. But for now, the person who seems to gather scorn, but also, this is the other side of the coin, He doesn't have favor. There are not godly people in his life saying to him, You're growing in wisdom. You're growing in grace. You're growing in humility. The humble person is tangibly humble. And therefore, the favor that he receives is from those who would say, You're growing in humility. But verse 35 makes it so much easier. The wise will inherit honor. Are you the person who demands honor? Or do you have honor? Is it a natural thing for people to honor you? Or is it a natural thing for them to dishonor you? Fools get disgrace. Why? Because of their folly. Because of their foolish conduct. Well, as we think through these eight methods by which God grants favor from himself, but also from men, it should be our desire as a local body to assess one another. And so how much more appropriate could it be than for us to go into the Lord's table together this morning? 1 Corinthians 11 We would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. This is a collective judgment, a collective assessment. It is collective accountability. It is the call upon the body of Christ to be certain within a particular local body that that local body is in fact effective starting with unity in the body by addressing unaddressed sin. But those who are unwilling are disinterested in God's discipline and therefore will most certainly bring about God's condemnation. So why not engage in the practice wherein the Lord gives us that unity to ensure that there is no unrepentant sin. That's what we do when we take the Lord's table. Well, as we begin to sing and the men bring the bread and the cup, prepare your own heart as we take the Lord's table together. (laughs) Verse 23 of uh, 1 Corinthians 11, Paul says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. I A popular phrase these days is um, to live the gospel. You don't live the gospel. Jesus lived the gospel. You and I are to live in light of the gospel. There's a real important distinction. It's not just semantics. Uh, You don't live Christ's death on the cross. You are to exemplify that. You don't live his resurrection. You are to follow him in resurrection. And if his death is your hope and if his resurrection is your hope, then you will live in such a way that proves that you love his death. You love what his death accomplished, and therefore you are willing to die daily to self. So when we take the Lord's table, we take it because we rejoice, not because we have somehow been able to measure up to be able to take it. I think there can be much confusion about this. Have I lived in such a way that brings me to the place where I measure up and therefore I'm able to take the bread and the cup? That's works salvation. You don't earn, nor do I earn the ability To take the bread and the cup. When we do, we rest in what Christ fully accomplished. And we proclaim that death. We proclaim it in a concentrated way. The bread represents his body, which was broken for us. And the cup represents his blood, which was spilled for us. So when we do it, it's symbolic. But it's not only symbolic of what he has done, it is a statement about what we will do because we are doing it right now. We rest not in our performance, not in our ability to establish unity with those with whom we have had difficulty, but we rest in what he has done because it is absolutely and completely sufficient. We call it efficacious. His death made certain our forgiveness because of that, we drink to his death. We drink in light of his death. We take the bread, which represents his body given on our behalf, but ultimately the blood represents his death. And so we acknowledge, we proclaim his death, that by his death, sinners are forgiven, not because of our performance, not because of our ability to comply with scripture, but because of what he did So let's do that together. i